Welcome everyone to another episode of the Lived Experience series with the Turnaround Project. Today I'm joined by CEO and founder of New Leaf Network, Marie Claire O'Brien. Welcome to the podcast, Marie Claire. Hi Michael, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I came across you guys um, as most people do during the the COVID lockdown. Um, <laughs> I think I, I I saw a tweet from someone which which directed me to New Leaf, and then I I listened in and signed up to sort of one of your online zooms at the time with with those with lived experience of the criminal justice system. Just for the listeners, can you tell everyone briefly? what New Leaf Network does and your sort of rationale around for founding it? Yeah, I mean, the network is just a project within my organisation, which is the New Leaf Initiative CIC. So the New Leaf Initiative CIC is the overarching company that I founded in 2014. Um, And we're primarily prison to employment specialists. So we support people um, wherever they're at in their journey within the criminal justice system, whether that's pre-offending, at risk of offending, um, whether they're in custody or whether they are being released, or even if they've been released for, you know, 10, 20 years and are still struggling to get their uh, foot back on the ladder in society. So so we engage with anybody, regardless of where they're at with their journey. Um, and the network specifically is around creating a peer meant peer support platform basically where people with uh, lived experience that are a bit further on on such as um yourself and myself give back to others that perhaps aren't as far along and give them advice a positive um network to tap into access to training and opportunities such as jobs and things like that so that's what the network was about and that and we've been going for about a year now we're, we're just heading up to our second conference and awards on the 16th which is really exciting um but my actual organization's been going for the past seven years so um so yeah there's there's a lot i suppose to talk about in terms of all of that (laughs) yeah no you mentioned the the conference and awards on the 16th of december and you've got a a theme quite close to my heart which is resilience can you tell everyone why you chose that theme? What came to mind? Was it sort of the past 18 months to two years with COVID? Um, you know, tell me a bit about that in terms of the theme. Yeah, I think I think in terms of um, COVID, it just made sense um, from an organisational, you know, resilience point of view down to the human um, resilience kind of perspective and, and debate. I think I think resilience in the first instance seems quite seems like quite a simple topic to discuss um, and quite a positive topic to discuss. But I think there's another side to it that I'm really interested in, which is, um, you know, this rhetoric that we hear a lot of the times in, in politics, especially around, you know, these people that commit crimes, they need to have more resilience that, you know, we need to. We need to work with our prisoners to make them more resilient in the on the in the outside and become positive members of society. That kind of Daily Mail rhetoric, if you like. Um, and I think there's a big discussion to be had there because, firstly, you can't know that you're resilient until you've been through the quagmire. So, by its very nature, you have to have experienced how to kind of come through it and know that you are a resilient character and also I think resilience surely like risk risk is a a big thing to those of us that have been in the criminal justice system um surely resilience is also a fluid 
thing you know thinking about trauma and how we react you know directly after such things sometimes we may not feel resilient or act resilient in those moments um you know depression um substance misuse mental health other mental health issues they can all kind of come to the forefront when we go through some sort of trauma but does that mean that you're not resilient (laughs) or does that just mean that you've looked at other coping strategies to kind of get you through that period where you weren't feeling quite so resilient surely resilience is when you emerge out of that um and fight to reclaim some normality that for me i think is is what resilience is about and obviously it's really relatable in terms of covid and what we've all been through as a nation well as a, yeah. as, as a as a world really um and hopefully the build back better rhetoric um will will resonate with people that attend the conference and we can have a really big conversation about all the different facets of resilience from organizational resilience down to human resilience yeah now you're through the network you're you're pushing doors at the moment uh marie claire in terms of obviously the from a wider statutory perspective a doj hm ppss and then as that filters down in the sort of other statutory agencies, stakeholders, alliances, and then the third sector, which is obviously the front face. How, how have you found your own journey in, in doing that over the past number of years um, in terms of those that are holding the power and privilege in the country? Um, are you finding that they're more susceptible to conversations or is, is, this, is the door still very firmly sort of half shut? No, I mean, I think it's really exciting and we're on the right track. Um are we speaking specifically about HMPPS with this? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think they're trying. I, th- I think it's. Um, I don't think they're there yet. Like, you know, like, 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 I'm not there yet either. You know, where I want to be. I don't think HMPPS are there, and I think they're quite honest about that. But you know, we can't deny the progress that's been made. You know, ex-prisoners having keys to prisons, having security clearance, um, to work in multiple prisons. Have yeah. You know, all this stuff, you know, I've got a person who works for me who's on licence still and she's working in a prison reception, um, meeting and greeting all the guys as they, they come out for release. So that wouldn't have happened um, maybe 10 years ago. That that just would have been a big no-no or it would have had, had so much bureaucratic nonsense and procedures around it that it just wouldn't have been, you know, worthwhile. But... But we're seeing more governors, I think, that are quite innovative and are willing to take, you know, I hate to use the word risk, but they're willing to take the risk on us and sign off on our, you know, sign off on our work within their prisons because they know that we're doing great stuff. And I think that's the beautiful thing, isn't it, that our work is is speaking for itself now and that HMPPS want to engage with people that have been in touch with the criminal justice system. They want to engage with people that have got convictions. They want to employ um, you know, within their own massive, vast organisation, people that have got that lived experience, um, lived expertise. I mean, just this week, I was having a conversation with Cara, um, who's the lived experience lead for HMPPS, and she's got, you know, 63 previous convictions um, under her belt. She's actually a keynote speaker at our, our conference and awards, and I can't wait to hear her. She, she you know, she's in recovery from active addiction, She's got a charge sheet as long as your leg. And she's the lived experience lead employed by HMPPS to kind of educate um, their staff around what that looks like. And I think it's really exciting. So, yeah, I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're on an exciting 
um, journey where things can only get better. Yeah, and and I actually wasn't aware of that, so I'm I'm actually I'm absolutely thrilled to hear that that person's obviously speaking at the awards. There's also another gentleman I just saw the that those speakers uh, who appeared on my previous podcast, Gethin Jones. Yes. Yeah, f- fantastic story, and obviously trying to to push a lot of those doors that that you're pushing as well simultaneously, Marie Claire. And also, he is employed by HMPPS as an ex yeah. prisoner and an ex care leaver. You know, so they are trying. They they're trying to value lived experience, um, and not just in a tokenistic way, which is kind of how it was when I started. Um, they're really, you know, in senior management, in senior leader roles, which is brilliant. Um, I, yeah. I have a governor as a friend, you know, a, a dep governor that's a friend of mine. And they also have previous convictions from when they were a, a youth. Um, but they work within they work within the system. And it's, yeah, it's, it's there. It's trickling through, I think, the good news stories about what rehabilitation actually looks and feels like. And these people that work for HMPPS exemplify that. And I think they take the fear away from the rest of society. So I think it's a really important message that HMPPS are giving here because they're practicing what they preach. You know, it's no good saying from your ivory tower, employ ex-offenders, they're great, they'll help your business if you're not actually doing it yourself. So yeah. I think, yeah, they're finally taking away the hypocritical vibe and they're actually practicing what they preach, which is brilliant. Yeah. Now, I want to draw you back a couple of years because I read a report that you uh, wrote which I thought was excellent and I'm going to read the title out um, so everyone can actually search this up online it's called Leading with Conviction the unique complexities faced by ex-prisoner entrepreneurs working within the criminal justice system mm-hmm. can you tell me what was the, the motivation for writing that um, what has happened since that sort of report has been released how you're finding sort of engagement with some of those findings yeah, so it was a small-scale study that I did for my dissertation um, as as part of my uh, Warwick degree that I completed a few years ago, a couple of years ago now. Um, and obviously, my own lived experience um, as an ex-prisoner kind of gave me the foundations of um, why I wanted to choose that topic. I'm an ex-prisoner. I run an organisation in the criminal justice system. I know many others that do. And it made a sense just to kind of unpick what that looks like um there's lots and lots of research around you know service user involvement and that like i said earlier that lower lower end tokenistic and um, lived experience kind of stuff but there wasn't anything really about leaders um people like me that are, you know ceos running small organizations small to medium organizations there was there was nothing about that and i think it's because it's quite a new phenomena well it's not a new phenomena in terms of it's been happening forever but it's quite a new phenomena in terms of having a light shone on it um as a as a, a conversation point so yeah i chose that just to kind of bridge the gap in research i suppose or fill some of the gaps um and we had about 44 responses i think um from a variety of people like Gethin, um people like Kara, you know working in the sector and it was really interesting the findings kind of um, well, they just said what 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 issues they were facing, and a lot of it was around, you know, um, having other peers that they could relate to. You know, it's lonely at the top, so they wanted a network of people like them that they could bounce ideas off and get funding advice and so on and so forth. Um, but they also wanted like they wanted recognition, so the award, the awards and conference was kind of born from that study. 
Um, the network was born from that study. Um, and we kind of just use that as the basis, I suppose, for, for all the work that we do within the network. Um, and it's grown exponentially, actually, in the last 12 months. I think we've got about 180 members and ally members at the moment, which is just fantastic. And we're looking to um, just to recruit more people, but especially those just coming out of prison when they need the support the most. I think that's the next big piece of work that we want to focus on, creating some sort of platform where we can engage our community. Yeah, now I've recently started uh, with an organisation and this podcast that you're speaking on today, the Lived Experience Series, is, is part of one of my responsibilities while also not only inviting those with lived experience who I've seen have punched through the glass ceiling and are, are starting to create real ripples across the lived experience leadership sector, but also those that are leaving, as you say, sort of the criminal justice sector at the early stages. They're trying to resettlement. They're maybe trying to get housing, accommodation. They need a range of protective factors built around them. And we're slightly behind the eight ball here um, because we're taking the lead, obviously, from organisations in the mainland UK, such as New Leaf Network, um, the Lax Leaders Movement um, out of the centre um, for knowledge, equity, etc., and trying to use their expertise, experience and skills to, to look at how we could potentially do this in an ANI perspective, Riekler. And because we're so small in terms of a, of a country, it's uh, it's going to be quite challenging. So I actually find a bit of comfort that I can lean on people like yourself and others across the mainland UK to get some ideas about how this could potentially work in a local context, um, which is going to be um, quite, quite challenging in, ter- in terms of its undertaking. Well, if anyone can do it, you can. Well, thanks, thanks very much for the vote of confidence. Now, you, you mentioned, obviously, um, as you were t- articulating that, that part of your, your journey, um, your own experience within the CGS system. Can you tell me a bit more about that in terms of, you know, that whole experience um, of travelling through the gate, how you felt, how you coped um, in terms of a or, or hope, and maybe what you wanted to do sort of post-leaving the gates behind? Yeah, um, so I went to prison in 2006 and I'd never been in custody before. Um, hadn't really known anybody even that had been to prison at that point. I wouldn't say I was naive because I was a lap dancer at the time and I don't think you can ever find a naive lap dancer. You know, it was quite street. <laughs> I was quite streetwise by that point after two and a half years of working in that underworld yeah but in terms of prison I was naive and in terms of addiction you know um a class a addiction I was quite naive and I can just remember being in the um it was when there was blizzards the weather was horrendous it was snowing it was blizzards it was horrendous and anyway <coughs> excuse me I got sentenced at Birmingham Crown Court and it took eight hours to get from Birmingham Crown Court in the snow to get to Bristol, um, Eastwood Park, which was my first prison. And I didn't have a coat because I didn't realise you could take... I didn't realise that once you were in the dock, that was it. You weren't going to get your, your belongings off your mum. So my mum had my bag of stuff, but I couldn't get it off her. So I was literally in, in the suit that I went to court in and nothing else, freezing because we couldn't get any any heating into the van because we were going so slowly and it was freezing outside. And... um. I can just remember feeling 
quite vacant and empty um at that point and I remember the woman behind me she was she was also in her cubicle on the on the prison prison van and she said oh I'm rattling I'm rattling and I said um I know it's freezing isn't it and she went no I'm rattling because I'm coming off heroin and I was like and I was like oh sugar I'm gonna get eaten alive in this place and I just my heart just sank because it was a world that hadn't really hadn't really got any experience in um but actually it wasn't that bad you know um I think I was quite unique in that I definitely felt like I deserved to be to be in prison so that kind of took a lot of the I suppose negative feelings around prison for me I just kind of was there to do my time get my head down and and get out if you like um I think depression massively kicked in in the early stages of my sentence though you know I was really emotional and just struggling I think I was just struggling you know we I'd had crutches of weed for years I'd used a variety of recreational drugs if not the harder stuff um and and to not have any of those crutches around me I found that quite a difficult transition um, yeah. and the guilt and the shame obviously that we all feel I think when we're involved in the criminal justice system that was hard to deal with as well despite having a lovely family that waited for me and supported me and you know loved me which a lot of the other women didn't have um yeah. and even with all that positive you know um you said it earlier those protective factors you know I still went looking for heroin when I was on the rehab wing which I'd never been in touch with I'd never been around that before but but I was at a definite crossroads at that point, I think, a couple of months into my sentence where um, where prison nearly won. You know, it nearly it nearly crushed me in terms of heroin came onto the wing. Um, I put my neck on the line and told the officer that, you know, there's heroin on the wing. The girls are all struggling because they want to use it. Can you rescue us? And they did nothing. She did nothing on that Friday afternoon. She just shut the doors on us and left us to our own devices. And to me, now, now as a strong, assertive woman, that was negligent. Um, yeah, completely negligent. And on that rehab wing you mentioned, or uh, Marie Claire, did you did you guys have opportunities to get involved in any activities, or was it locked up for X amount of hours a day, or or? bring it back a stage did you want to do anything in terms of um maybe trying to get through your day um without having those um ill effects or or that sort of downtime in in terms of your thoughts and or i need some type of fix to get me through the next you know one hour no it was very much a therapeutic community so it was it was basically a rehab in the middle of a prison where you we were all kind of segregated from the rest of the prison population and i wasn't okay. on the re i wasn't on the drug rehab because like i say you know i was addicted to heroin or crack i hadn't that hadn't been my experience it was more around um because of the emotional stuff that i was going through the officer um one of the officers just said you you're going to struggle to get through your sentence like this you need you need to get therapy and stuff and wrapped um which is now the forward trust that kind of came into my um into my life and it was four months intensive treatment so it was counseling every day it was group work most days it was um aa na meetings you know throughout the week it was challenging each other it was meditation it was it was beautiful if i'm honest with you and it was really bloody hard as well uh, on the other side of that um 
So I think, you know, in the beginning of that journey, I felt quite different to the rest of the women because a lot of them were crack and heroin addicts in their, you know, in their lives. And I, I just looked for things that were different about us, why I wasn't like them. And then I think when the heroin came onto the wing and, you know, I told the officer she did nothing and then I went looking for it, I think that was a real wake-up call for me, a realisation that actually I'm just the same as these women. I'm no better and no worse just because my life hasn't exposed me to crack and heroin previously. Like, it's exposed me to it now and look what I'm doing. You know, I've just gone to seek it out and I've got a lovely family and friends around me and, you know, it it was just a massive realisation that I'm no better and no worse than anybody and, and vice versa. And it just allowed me to get real and get honest and access treatment and the therapy that I needed. And it also, if I'm if I'm if I'm going back there, you know, it was my first experience of peer mentoring. Um, because I became um after I'd gone through the treatment and it really did help me in terms of my mood and my emotions and just feeling a lot healthier. Um, it it was that introduction to peer support and how powerful that can be and, you know, learning some of the skills that go along with that. So, yeah, I was really grateful for that, for that brief period in prison. Um, the rest of it was crap. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that means a different thing in, in ANA. <laughs> that means <Sorry>. having fun. <laughs> That can mean having fun and banter, as we call it. So you're, you're talking about, obviously... OK, let's change that word to rubbish. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. So you, you mentioned, obviously, the, the amount of work you went through in terms of um, your emotions and your journey and, you know, and introspection and self-awareness and everything that, that, that entailed and came around that with you. When did that realisation hit you that, one, you maybe didn't want to go back there and, two, what you wanted to do post-release... I mean, as soon as I set foot in the place, I knew I didn't want to go back there. <laughs> um, yeah, I had no intention of ever, ever setting foot in a, in another prison again. I'll be honest with you, Michael. When I left, when I left prison after my fourteen month sentence, which wasn't a long time really, it was more than manageable. Um, I couldn't get away from there fast enough, and I, like like I say, I just had no intention of ever working in the criminal justice system. It was so far off my radar; it was unbelievable. Um, but you know, I, I went home to my partner. I was, I was, there was a few things that happened around that time. And it was actually years later. Um, it was years later that a volunteering opportunity fell on my lap. And I was a single mum at the time. I had, you know, not a lot of money around me, but I had a background. I had a successful background and an education behind me. So I could have gone back into sales or mortgage advising or whatever, you know, estate agency, whatever I'd done before. But I didn't particularly want to do that. I felt like I'd had this life-changing negative experience in terms of um, my crime and, and going to prison for it and I wanted to do something with that like I'd always had a bit of an activist in me if I'm honest from when I was a young child I always had social justice running through my veins and, and want if I saw something that was wrong I wanted to fight against it you know I always had that and I think I lost it actually along the way and then um, when I came out of prison, I think that was kind of ignited again a little bit in terms of what do I want to do? You know, those existential questions around what am I here for? What's the reason that I'm I'm alive? And a volunteering opportunity fell on my lap, like I said, and, I, and it was mentoring women in prison. And I didn't feel good enough. I felt really full of shame and guilt still. And I didn't feel good enough for that role. I felt like they wouldn't want me because I was an ex-prisoner. 
um even though I was driving and you know I had I had a lot of other skills and they did want me and that was my first taste I suppose of doing something working within criminal justice in the community and that's what really gave me the bug um you know working with those women who were very complex well they weren't complex to me but on paper they presented as very complex um high risk you know carrying blades uh burning down schools spitting at police that kind of behavior but with me you know as an ex-prisoner never experienced that from any of them only had um, rapport and respect and honesty and all those beautiful things that it takes to you know rehabilitate yourself and, and progress in life and that was really powerful for me that volunteering experience I used to be honest it was probably one of the happiest times in my life because I was doing something not for the money I was doing it because it was the right thing to do for me and for others I was giving back and you know I felt like I had um I felt like I had a purpose in life again um so I'd volunteered for them for about a year just shy of a year and then I worked for user voice um on a casual basis driving up and down the country working with youth offenders um setting up prisoner councils inside men's prisons primarily and um and it was while I was working for User Voice actually that I took part. Well, I, I led on um, I led on a bit of a project where I spoke to four hundred, over four hundred men and women, um, on probation licenses in the community, and um, they all said the same thing. So the question I was asking is, what support are you lacking? You know, what what do you need to kind of move away from crime? And they pretty much said the same thing. They were like, we want people like you that, you know, that have been to prison that we can relate to that isn't judging us. And we want access to opportunities, training, education, jobs, jobs, jobs. Um, you know, 60 odd percent of people in prison think having a job is the single most important factor in reducing their reoffending, which made sense to me, you know, in terms yeah. of economics and stuff, let alone feeling good about yourself and self-esteem and being pro-social, all those other things added added benefits if you like so yeah that was where the project was born really um from that evidence base and that that consultation with the community in question and to be honest with you you'll notice um a common thread of this running throughout new leaf because everything we do every project that we do is born out of consultation with the people that we're trying to serve there's no point in me sitting here as an ex-prisoner thinking oh, i've got all the answers um of what prisoners need because i don't I was one prisoner and I had a very different experience to the majority of the prison population. You know, I was very privileged. I had money, I had family, I had visits. Um, yeah, I was I was lucky, I was blessed. I don't yeah. speak for the whole prison population, I, I, so I need them to tell me what they need, if you like, and that's where we go. Um, that's what the consultation, the dissertation was about. You know, what do you need as a leader with lived experience? How can we support you with that? Yeah. Um, what gave you, because it's fascinating in terms of some of these insights, and I, I love speaking to, to people that have um, been through the system, lived experience, whether or not they come from a privileged or a, or an impoverished background. We all have a we all have a story to tell. Marie Claire, I'm I'm really keen to find out from that that period with user voice and, and obviously looking at, at some of those consultations, what gave you the, the drive to say, look, I could potentially do this myself, and and here's what I'm because you you mentioned purpose and and your why and and obviously the the courage and the conviction to say 
I think I can do this myself. Where, where, where did that come from? And, and have you got any previous experience of setting up in business and, and you know, speaking with commissioners and procurement and tendering, et cetera? Or was that all, I'll do this and I'll learn it as I go? So I think I had my corporate experience and I've always been quite confident. I've been quite educated. Um, so, you know, I, I think I come with a certain set of skills that help definitely in terms of communicating with whether it be commissioners and governors of prisons or prisoners, for example. You know, I'm, I'm quite a good communicator and can, and can flex between the two. Um, the, the thing for me that I suppose inspired me to think I can do this or I can do something similar was seeing other people um the the one person that sticks out uh, and that I'm still in contact with today a classer as a friend is Paula Harriet who's the um head of I think head of prisoner involvement for revolving doors agency and she was in prison with me she's older than me um but she was in she was in my last prison with me and we didn't know each other to speak to but I knew of her and she was a busy bee off doing her own thing and I, I later worked for her when I worked for user voice as I just mentioned and seeing this woman that had been a prisoner she'd done a hefty sentence for um you know for, for whatever and just seeing her take center stage and speaking in front of all these probation commissioners and you know leaders but also the young people that were engaging was just inspirational um and I remember just looking at her and thinking I, I could do that and it was like a light bulb moment of, of I suppose, just being inspired by somebody and, and, and them lifting the ceiling on what I thought was possible for myself. And, and that's what I love about lived experience. You know, I love nothing more than going into prisons and speaking to people. And then they're like, miss, if you can do it, I can do it. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly the message. If that is exactly <laughs> the message I'm trying to give you is, yeah, if I can do it, you can do it. Yeah, you, you you mentioned Paula, um, and she was, would you believe, she was the first guest on, on this lived experience podcast. You're, you're the third, so... <laughs> it was, well, there we uh, go, then. Nice <laughs> there, there seems to be a bit of a tidal wave coming from Birmingham as well around this. I've got another guy on after uh, Christmas who's also a former Brummie. Um, he's a, he's up as a director now of an organisation called Inside Out Support Wheels. Um, and he's he's also a former Brummie, so you guys are, are driving. <laughs> you guys, you guys are driving a lot of conversations at the moment, Marie Claire. Yeah, we are a gobby experience. bunch. We are a gobby bunch. I have to be honest. In Birmingham, we yeah, that'll be what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did you then go about obviously establishing New Leaf Network? Um, it was were you did you go and approach some people? How did you get that initial sort of? Um, should we say finance to sort of get you off the ground and start establishing what you needed to do? Um, yeah, so I managed to get some funding to conduct the research from Unlimited, which was really helpful. Um, that was, I think, £15,000. So, so that was to kind of gather the data, if you like, and speak to people and conduct. So I did um, a survey response and we had 40, 40 odd survey responses, but then I did some in-depth interviews to kind of unpick some of the themes that had come out. Um, which obviously you've read about. But apart from that 15,000, the network hasn't been funded. Um, New Leaf, my, the New Leaf Initiative, my community interest company, has funded the network and will continue to do so for, for, the, for the time being. Um, to answer your question about how we galvanised it, um, 
so the respondents to the study obviously that they had the opportunity to leave their contact details if they wanted to get involved further so that was the first thing was to just contact everybody that had done that and invite them to um a round table discussion in Birmingham which I did and we had a great turnout both online and in person um, and that was kind of I think last summer or maybe towards sort of autumn time and it was there and then that we arranged you know we decided to to just set up the first conference and awards um, it was in a really difficult time of, of lockdown and covid and restrictions and stuff and we you know we managed to do this conference and awards I think I think we gave ourselves like 16 weeks or something ridiculous maybe less than that to kind of from start to finish um but we did it and we, we only did it because there were a few key players in the network so adam who runs easy jail um up, up in up in geordie town he he's instrumental his energy is um fundamental to the network actually so he kind of he's the one that sends the emails he's the membership coordinator um he will send out the weekly bulletins with the jobs and stuff like that so yeah without adam it probably wouldn't be happening and then there's some other um members on the steering committee as well such as tev tevik Solomon, who works for the forward trust um uh, jerry keogh who um is up in scotland who again is a good friend and, and has been a real good support um and a few other key players as well so yeah it's definitely a team effort it's not just me on my own in fact probably adam on his own more than me um but yeah the first conference and awards was a great success and it just felt like the right thing to do and then like i say since then we've got we've we've gathered momentum even further um so we're really excited about next week's conference and awards and hoping that it will be bigger and better than last year even yeah and you, you obviously mentioned this is the second year of the awards marie claire what what are you looking at in terms of um, the organisation moving forward in terms of, of growth, in terms of any type of plans? What what do you want to achieve in terms of, you know, that work that the THMP, SS or, or others trying to support what they're trying to do? What, what, what are you looking at over the next maybe three to five years? So we are offering our unique sort of peer-led model Um to work with the prisons in the West Midlands area and, and then hopefully going further afield nationally. Um, we've got a departure lounge contract with HMP Birmingham, for example, that I mentioned earlier, um, where an ex-prisoner meets and greets every single returning citizen from that prison, offers them support, offers them, you know, food parcels, ID, which we can provide, as well as courses that we run um, and that mentoring support, you know, that one-to-one -one person-centred support that I mentioned. So... So I want we want to replicate that in as many prisons as possible because we know it works. Um, and then obviously alongside that goes the network. So if we can tap people into this positive community at the same time as supporting their transition into the community, then we're ticking a few boxes, aren't we? So I suppose it's just I suppose it's just expanding the mad, the model, but in a way that it remains person centred and it does what it says on the tin as opposed to just being a nodding dog for commissioners and losing the quality of the service. I was given really good advice actually by a prisoner once who was a very, very successful businessman in the community. He was he was my mentor actually back in the day. And he just said, don't just become a nodding dog. Don't just say yes, yes, yes for the money. He was like, you need to perfect your service before you even think about expanding. And I really feel like that's kind of what we've done 
in Birmingham now, but it's but in the new year, you know, we'll be looking to expand work with other prisons. We've already got another two prisons that um, want to talk with us about galvanising a departure lounge with them. Um, so yeah, more of the same really. Um, we've just I've just secured three hundred and fifty thousand pounds worth of funding from Big Lottery, which is really exciting, and that's going to enable us to get our own premises because at the minute I just rent a few offices um, from another charity. So yeah, we're going to be moving into our own offices, taking on a new member of staff to do the teaching and training, and yeah, the future's looking bright, but a lot of work to do. Always a lot of work to do. Yeah, fantastic, Marika. And as I say. Any, any help I can give you with that message, just reach out and I'd be all too happy to sort of support any initiatives you have moving forward. Oh, um, brilliant. And the same to you. If you, know, if you. If you and any of your peers in Ireland want to join the network, well, I know you're a member of the network, Michael, but if anybody else wants to jump on, we'll happily support as much as we can in terms of um, your, you know, our colleagues in, in Ireland, wherever they are based. Yeah, fantastic. Now, I know you're slightly pressed for time, so before before we bring this to a close, I've got one final question for you. You mentioned um, throughout the podcast that you had a bit of an activist in you as you were growing out, growing up, should I say, and you, and you lost that uh, as you as you moved through life's transitions. What message would what message would Marie Claire now give to her younger self in terms of that journey? Um, I don't know. I don't. I think the journey is going to happen regardless, really. So I don't really believe in in. I have one regret, and that is uh, around around um, my offence, really. But the rest of it, I just think. You are where you need to be at any time, at any given time in life, so don't worry about it too much. Like, I was always meant to be doing this work and life kind of brought me back to it. Um, I don't know if I'd give myself any advice other than uh, other than just stay true to yourself. Um, just stay true to yourself and be authentic. I think that's all we can ask for in life is that, to deal and work with authentic people that's why I love working with ex-prisoners so much because generally I find them to be quite honest and transparent um and I like that rawness I like that realness um so yeah I think just be true to yourself yeah I I think that's a, a very simplistic but also a very profound takeaway message can I thank you for your time I know you're a very busy lady and can I wish you all the best with the awards next week? I will tune in um, on virtual, unfortunately, because of <laughs> the good old yeah. the good old pandemic putting putting plans to sort of pepper. But listen, you've been a fantastic guest, and I look forward to working with you and speaking to you as we move forward. Brilliant, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye now. Bye bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. To find out more about the Turnaround Project and its social enterprises, Big Loop Bikes and Outwork, please visit our website. Until next time, remember, everyone deserves a second chance in reaching their potential.